So yes, so open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. It's kind of towards the back of the, the whole Bible as you're looking at it. As you're finding that and we're getting there, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, please help us now to be faithful in the hearing of your word, faithful in the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that in the spirit we would grow in our understanding and that we would grow in our love and that we would grow in our obedience, that we may abide in you more closely. We give you this time, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have a tough task here, as I've been talking about, like, trying to tighten things up. Like, these, um, my rambling intros have got to get under control, and so I'm really trying to tighten this one up. And so here's, here's kind of the, the big overview. Normally I don't even say the name of the sermon because I don't know the name of the sermon. I've never named my sermons and Jeff uh, Bauer can give testimony to that because if he every service afterwards he comes up and he's like, so what's the title? Because he wants to post it. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And you may have been one of the people that I've been talking to at the time. And I'll ask you, like, what do you think the title should be? Because I don't know. And because um, it's usually not till after the fact that I can look back and say, like, well, this was this this is what we should have titled this. But this is one that I I kind of used a, a title to say, like, this this is what we're anchoring ourselves to, and and it's this this the 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 book of Ephesians in in a one simple phrase is about becoming who we already are, becoming who we already are. That there is this idea that, that the root of Christianity is that God created us so that we would enjoy him and his glory forever, to share his glory with us, but that we rebelled against him and that God's plan to restore all things and reconcile all things back to himself was to send his son to live the life that we could not live and die the death that we deserved so that in him we might have eternal life. That in him we may be reconciled back to the Father and reclaim the inheritance that God had created us for. And that most of the epistles, most of these letters that Paul is writing to these churches are about how to walk in that identity. And what we say in Christianity is that Jesus has already secured all this for us. We don't earn it. We don't like grow. We don't become believers in Jesus. And now we go set about the work of earning our inheritance or earning our place. But rather, when we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus, when Jesus saves us through the repentance of, of sin and forgiveness, when he buys us back, we are, we are already heirs, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are already declared righteous, though none are righteous. And the rest of our lives here on earth are spent learning to walk in that identity that has already been secured for us. 
This is critical that we understand the order of these things. That we are becoming in this life as we grow in our understanding and our love and our abiding in Christ, our obedience to him, that we are becoming who Jesus has already declared us to be. If you look in Ephesians 1, Paul writes this, and in verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See if you can pick out these themes that we just put in a, in a nutshell. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So he's saying this is a mystery of his will. Like, why? why would God do this? He sets forth his plan in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The reconciling of all things to himself. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the, accounts, to the counsel of his will. So you see those things going on? God created us to love us and to share in his glory, that we would love him and share in his glory. But the fracture there is our rebellion, that God has this big plan to reconcile all things and hold all things together in Christ. And it is a mystery, and it was a mystery. Before Jesus walked the earth, it was a, a mystery to be like, how is God going to do this? How is he going to bring all of us back together? Because they knew the depravity of their own souls. They knew as they kept trying to follow God, they kept falling away. And Paul is just setting the stage to show them, okay, this is your identity. This is what it's rooted in. So walk in it. He says this in, in verse 2, or chapter 2, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, to kind of rally them around this idea. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Remember, everybody reading this is going to say, yes, you're right, it was. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul is setting up, is setting the stage for them, is to say, look, this is what God created you for, but this is what rebellion looks like. We didn't want it. And he's describing their life in rebellion against God. 
And when people say, like, well, I don't know if I'm, like, really rebelling against God actively. Like, I don't do any of the really bad things. I'm basically a good person. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That we are actually carrying out our own desires, our own plan. That God, the world was created by God and for God. We were created by God and for God. And yet we live our lives as though we were created by ourselves, for ourselves. There's no higher praise in our culture to be a self-made man. There's no higher pursuit than to do things my way, to pursue what I think is most lovely, most valuable. And Paul says that is rebellion against God. And it is the source and the root of all evil, and that in serving myself, I'm actually serving the prince of darkness. And that is who we were, by nature, children of wrath, like all of mankind. And then two of the most beautiful words in the entire book of Ephesians, verse four, but God. If you have your Bible and you have a pen, I would underline that 50 times. Circle it. This is who we are. This is what God did in chapter 1 for us. This is who we are in rebellion of that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not the great love that he loved us when we called out for help, not the great love with which he loved us when we decided, I think I kind of want to turn my life around. The great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this is the, the message that we keep declaring over and over and over again. We were created by God and for God. We rebelled against him in all kinds of ways, that we continue to battle that rebellion inside of us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is glorious. This is the kind of gospel news that the early church, when people would hear for the first time, they're going, what? How is that possible? Why would he do that? And he answers in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I just want to say that if you asked people in our culture who do not go to church, who don't want to have anything to do with church, they don't want to have anything to do with religion, my guess is that this would be completely foreign to them. Because they would say things like, well, being you know, a religious person means like, you, know, you can't do certain things and you got to try to be a good person and it's about going to church and all these things. And, and you'd look at that and be like, well, 
You realize that we were dead? And he's made us alive together with Christ, not when we figured things out, but just looked at us with compassion and brought us alive. And that what he is giving us, he is securing for us the inheritance that he created us for, that we rejected. And that he raised us up to to sit with him. And that we have been made this people and formed as this people so that we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. It's a very different picture of what the church is supposed to be. His whole plan to reconcile all things to himself runs through the church. I don't, I don't understand why. It doesn't feel very effective or efficient to me. But his plan was to send his son to be the light of the world. And then with him, to raise him from the dead and with him, all of us. So that as he ascends into heaven, he leaves us to be the body of Christ, to be the light of the world. And when we are formed properly, when we are the church, that means we then display the immeasurable riches of his grace. For his glory. That he's saying, I want to tell the world who I am and what I am like. And I am putting forward as exhibit A, the church. That's an incredible responsibility, but an incredible joy. He says it this way in in verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he reconciles us, forms us together, and says, Now I have a mission for you. I have works for you to do so that others would see those, and as Jesus said, that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you were separated, alienated, lost, but now drawn close by the blood of Christ. He talks about that God has made peace through the blood of the cross, that we are now fellow citizens joined together, that we are formed into a people, and we spend the rest of our lives growing into the identity of who we already are, the body of Christ. So how does he do this in us? Well, chapter 3 is largely about that. As he's laid this foundation, how he works this out in us is through the power of spirit rooted in the love of Christ. So as you and I are, are being changed and transformed from the inside out, That changes how I interact with the people around me. And as I change, and as you change, we change. And as we change, we display the glory of God. I've had people say before, you can can explain away the kindness of one person. Radical generosity of one person. 
radical love and devotion and service. You can, if it's one person, you can explain that away. But you can't explain that away of an entire body, an entire family. Now that starts to say something. And as we grow up in our maturity, Paul's going to lay this out and saying, as you do that, it will bring unity. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened and with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is saying, this is your identity. This is how Christ has secured it for you. And now you need to walk in the reality of that identity. And here's what's interesting, is he says that God's going to transform you and change you and, and make you into his family through the power of the Spirit. And he's essentially saying, do you want to experience the power of his Spirit? Do you want to have Christ dwell in your hearts through faith? Do you want to be filled with all the fullness of God? And his answer is, be rooted in the love of Christ. Comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. Know the love of Christ. Evidently, the key to being transformed in the power of the Spirit, and to have the wisdom of Christ, and to be filled with the fullness of God, is to be rooted in, to comprehend, and to experience the love of Christ. This is why we make such a big deal about the love of Christ. Because Paul makes a really big deal about the love of Christ. In fact, all of the scriptures make a really big deal about God's love demonstrated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at love, the love of Christ, as though it's like something to kind of be balanced with other things, we miss the point because what we see over and over and over again is that the plan is rooted in the love of Christ. It is carried out through the love of Christ. We are transformed through the love of Christ by abiding in the love of Christ. We are known by our love of Christ that flows out into loving one another. When they ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is, he says to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. There, there, this is not all, like it is the root and, and the fountain from which everything else in us flows, is to be loved, to love him because he first loved us, to be loved by God and to love God. That is the root of everything. Paul makes this very clear. If you do not comprehend or experience the love of Christ, then you have nothing you know nothing. 
And look at how he says it. It's not just like, this, is, this does not um, translate as this could just be taught like a four-year-old Sunday school class of just a really quick thing of like, hey, Jesus loves you. That's great. We tell our kids that. We mean that. But look at what Paul is saying. Like, holy cow, does this sound like something simple that could be covered in 20 seconds? He talks about rooted and grounded in love, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Like, that's not a 30-second point. We don't have any idea how to comprehend these things. That's why Paul is saying, pray that you'd have the strength, that the power of the Spirit would come out in a way that you would somehow, somehow be able to grasp something of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth, that you would somehow just know a little bit. And remember, know, he says that, that surpasses knowledge. That's because know in these terms would have been to experience for intimacy. This is what we pursue. And he said, when that happens, we will look different. He's already talking about this is what is true about you if you belong to Jesus through faith. You were lost in darkness, but God rescued you and adopted you and made you an heir to the kingdom and formed you as a family. That's already true. If you have repented and received Christ as your Savior and you are following him, if you belong to him, then that is true. And he will seal, that inheritance is sealed by the Holy Spirit and cannot be taken away from you. But the rest of our lives here are spent being changed in the power of the Spirit, rooted in the love of Christ, to grow up together as a family who walks in a manner worthy of of our calling. He's saying, that is who you are, so walk in that. You were children of wrath. Don't walk in that way anymore. Walk as children of light. Look at the first two verses of chapter four. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, remember he's in prison writing this, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So be the people God has already made you into. Grow in, your, in, grow in walking in that identity of who God has already made you. He's already secured it for you, so walk in it. And what does he say characterizes that walk? Verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain unity. If these things do not mark the nature of our church family, then we are not walking in a manner worthy of our calling. This is one of the reasons that we have to read large chunks of Scripture. 
Read it together. Read it by yourself. Read it, read it with a couple of other people. Read it. We read it in church. You try to read chunks of scripture together because you can pull out a random proverb here, a random verse from Paul over here, a random thing here, and you can piece this together and stitch it together into a religion and into a faith that has nothing to do with Jesus. But when you just read the book of Ephesians, like, do it. Go home this week and read the book of Ephesians and tell me what the clear identifier of the body of Christ is. Paint a picture of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He takes people who are far off, completely different, dead in their sins, and by grace he saves us so that we would display his glory through the good works he has given us to do as a family. This is why our identity statement is we are God's family on mission. It's not creative. It's not new. But it is simple and to the point that we belong to God. We belong to one another and we are given a mission to go on together. And it is our unity in that identity as God's family on mission, our unity together that displays this glory. It's impossible for us to imagine how difficult it was to be unified in the early church. How radical that would have been. They had different religious backgrounds, different languages, different economic statuses, different social standings. People who were forbidden to speak to each other, sometimes by their own laws. People who hated each other, vilified each other, saw each other as the root of all the problems that they had, and now they belong to one another. Now they're submitted to one another. We can't even imagine holding down a conversation for five minutes with someone who votes differently than us. These people were sitting next to people who were sworn enemies. And Paul is saying, you are called. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You belong to one another. So display that for the world, that the world might see the immeasurable riches of God's grace. And so everything we do as the church then is to build the body up. Look at Ephesians 4. Verse 11 says, He, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And he talks about, like, we build up the body of Christ to maturity so that we, um, look at verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. So the body, when it's working properly, builds itself up in love. And God gives the gifts to the church to do that. 
So our responsibility as, as pastors and, and shepherds is to equip the body to do that, to, to do the work of the ministry, which is that the body would build itself up together in love to accomplish the works that God has given to us so that the world might glorify our Father in heaven. We work for unity, for knowing Christ, for maturity, for speaking truth and love, aiming toward Christ. Each, each part working properly. And when each part works properly, the body grows, built up in love. Notice that it says each part working properly. That means all of us. There's no such thing as being a spectator in the body of Christ. If you are here and you don't know Jesus, you are a spectator and you're the only ones who are allowed to be a spectator. By all means, watch. Watch how the body of Christ interacts with each other and watch and say, like, what, what would explain that? But if you belong to Jesus, then you belong to one another. and You are called. He goes on in verse 22 and 24 and says, put off the old self and put on the new self. So again, walk in this identity to which you've been called. Walk, walk in a manner worthy of this. And notice this, and here's, here's a big thing about the book of Ephesians that I want you to notice. He, he's going to go into a list of things. of like So put, on the, put off the old self, put on the new self. And I'm not going to go into details with all these things. You can go home and you can read each one of those things. But in many ways, he's going to say, this is the old self, take that off, put on the new self. But here's what's striking about this. Virtually all of the examples that he's going to give have to do with how we love one another. This is not a discourse on just like personal holiness and, well, I just, I believe in God. This is, if you are walking in a manner worthy of the calling, then here's how you're going to look different. Here's some ways you're going to look different. And all of those ways are going to be how you interact with one another. He gives that example in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We literally belong to one another. And so we don't just put away falsehood because truth is good. We put away falsehood so that we can speak truth to our neighbor because we belong to our neighbor. And he goes through all these so lying turns to speaking truth to your neighbor in verse 25. In verse 26, anger turns to reconciliation. In verse 28, the thief becomes the provider for others in need. In verse 29, the corrupted speech is transformed into speech that builds up. In verse 31 and 32, bitterness and anger and wrath toward one another is replaced with kindness and compassion and tenderheartedness towards one another. And later in chapter 5, in verse 6, he'll go on and talk about how those transformed relationships work, like in every relationship, in friendships, in marriages, in parenting, in the workplace. He's saying, like, if you are transformed and if you're walking in this, then this is going to be on display, and the way it's going to be on display is how you love one another. They will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. They will know that you belong to Christ and that you've been loved by Christ and that you love others. That's how they're going to see it. They can't see your love for God. 
They might be able to watch you worship if they happen to be here on Sunday morning. They might see you in prayer in certain times. But what they will see more than anything else is how you interact with one another, how you speak to one another, how you, how you encourage one another, how you love people who are hard to love, how you pray for your enemies and love them. That's what they'll see. That's what they won't be able to explain. And that's what we talk about all the time. And it all comes back to Ephesians 5. If you look to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He's saying, like, follow Jesus. We know Jesus is the exact imprint and nature of God. So be imitators of God as beloved children. You belong to him. Be like your dad. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Which is a phrase that we often use here. What he has done in us, he wants to do through us. And this is our act of worship. It's a pretty amazing picture of who we're called to be. It's a pretty high bar of who we're called to be, right? It pretty much dwarfs any idea of church just being kind of like, well, this thing I go to and I probably should go to more or something that you don't really need. I mean, let me ask you this. Now that we've just, I mean, I know I've thrown so much at you, but I'm really hoping that like as you go and you read Ephesians, you'll just get a feel for this overview. But let me ask you this. Does it sound like Paul thinks that you can be a follower of Jesus and not be committed to a local body of believers? Do you think Paul would have a reference for that? I think he would even understand the question if someone said, do you have to go to church? To be a Christian, do you have to go to church? I think Paul would be so confused by the question. Does it sound like Paul thinks you can be and do all God has called you to, to be by just watching, like catching a sermon on a podcast? Or even just by attending a service, kind of showing up and then slipping out? Or does it sound like this type of faith requires an otherworldly devotion to one another? Look, we're, we're riding a wave right now as a church. If there's anything I've learned in my experience in ministry over the last couple of decades, is that these waves, like, I don't know why God chooses to, to like, give a special, like, it seems like a, a special blessing of his spirit on a people. But I'm seeing it, seeing it in the way that we're worshiping. I'm seeing it the way, in the way that we gather around the communion table. I'm hearing it in the stories as story after story after story of people talking about how God is, is moving in their lives. And that wave will only like, be ridden well if we build up this kind of family. And we can't ride the coattails of what has been done before. We can't say, like, well, 25 years ago, we were, really, we were really a tight family and we looked just like that. That doesn't have any bearing on today. You don't coast in the spiritual life. We don't drift toward God. It takes intentionality. It takes a different kind of devotion that takes time. And we try to keep things really simple so we can say, like, commit. And we say, like, you just need to experience family because the Bible says that. And that requires sacrifice and prioritization. No 
worthy relationships are built in spare time. I'm going to say that again. No worthy relationships are built in spare time. I remember when I asked Lauren out on our first date. And I, I got the courage up. I, I hung out for a very long time because I was trying to work up the courage to actually ask her out. In fact, it was like the night before finals, and so I was distracting her and her roommate from studying for finals because I couldn't get up the courage to ask her out. But that's what I intended to do, so I stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed until finally I asked her out. And I think I remember, she will, I'm sure, no doubt, correct me later and say that's not exactly how it happened, but how I remember it happening, which means that's the truth because I have the microphone, um, <laughs> How I remember it happening was, I said, well, do you want to go out? Would you like to go to a movie or something? And, and she said, when? And do you know when I was free to take Lauren out on a date? Anytime. Anytime. Exactly, anytime. <laughs> if she would have said, you know what I really like? Is I like watching sunrises. So I'll go out with you if you pick me up at 6 a.m. I'd have been like, awesome, I'm up every morning at 5 a.m., which was not true at all. But I would do it. Why? Because it was that important. Could you imagine if I asked her out and, and she said, and, and I said, hey, can I pick you up maybe like tomorrow night for a movie? And if she said, uh, tomorrow night doesn't work, but, but um, Saturday night I could do that. I'm like, mm. There's a TV show on that I really like, so that doesn't work for me. It's not that important, right? Like, imagine your favorite actor or athlete or author rolls into town and posts on, on Twitter, hey, is anyone available to show me around Peshtigo on Thursday? I'm going to be in town Thursday. Guess who's Thursday just freed up, Right? Like, I don't care what you had going on. You'd be like, nope. Yeah, I'm free. Totally free. Anytime. Anytime. And I get it. The reality is that we move around our schedules for things that we really value. We have time for what we truly value. Anyone who's been told by their children, I would have done what you asked me to do, but I didn't have time, knows this. Knows what I'm saying. And so again, I, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and I was like, hey, this is not a guilt trip. I have to preface this. It's not a guilt trip. It's a reality. It's just a, it's a diagnostic to say we don't see the depth and the value and the worth of who we are created to be. Because when I hear, you know, I would totally stay for, for that lunch, but, you know, we just had a full week I know we'd, we'd be here like early to connect with people, but, but you know, it's just hard to get around on Sunday mornings. You know, oh, I'd love to be there next week, but the, the Packers game is actually in the morning. Listen, I, I, it's just a diagnostic because I've been there too. There have been many times in ministry where I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's really inconvenient. So I get it. If you've been here long, you know we don't 
promote much. We don't call you to participate in a hundred different things. We don't give you a big telephone book of all the different things you could possibly do. And the reason we don't is because I feel like that's a distraction to the reality that if you've been saved by Christ, and if he says this is your church family, then at some point you got to get to a place where you just say, so then I'm all in. I'm going to serve, I'm going to be, and I'm I'm going to grow, and I'm going to play my part and be the member of this body to build one another up in love. And I know it's going to take sacrifice. I know it's going to mean time. And then my, my response to you is then I need to be a good steward. The leadership needs to be a good steward of that. And if you say, like, okay, wherever, wherever you need me to be, wherever we're going to be, like, I, I, I'm there, I'm ready to serve, I'm ready to give, I'm ready to do all that. And then we need to then be... Um, be faithful with that gift and say, okay. And then I'm not, we're not going to like create a million things to run you all ragged so that you just kill yourself volunteering in these things that you're not even sure if they, they matter. We're going to say, okay, we're going to do a few things. And we're just going to be radically committed to those so that we create an environment and cultivate a culture where people build one another up in love. Not a culture that's dependent on programming. Not a culture that's dependent on me getting up and being the circus monkey and getting people to do things. But a culture that stands around a table and looks at one another and listens to the Spirit and says, after the service, I'm going to go talk to that person and I'm going to to let them know that I'm praying for them. These are the things that are happening right now. And we want to build that up. And so, so here's... Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking, it's the beginning of a school year, kind of. It's like fall year resolutions. I'm asking you, if this is your church home, that you would commit to the area lunches and the family business meetings for this school year. Make it a point. Schedule your weekends away around it. Give Sunday mornings over and say, okay, I'm going to start here. I'm going to start with Sunday morning. I'm going to make it a priority. I'm going to be present. I'm going to get up early and I'm going to come in. I'm going to be here 15 minutes early. I'm going to see who God has for me to minister to. And I'm going to, if our area lunch is meeting afterwards, I'm going to meet afterwards. I'm going to hang out and I'm going to have a meal I'm just going to let being with the body of Christ be like that Sunday morning. I'm going to start there. I'll worry about the rest of the week another time. I'm going to worry about that. But take a faithful step in this one thing, a commitment in this one area. And see what God does with that. And let me just tell you, if you haven't been to the area lunches, like if you're coming expecting then a program or to get like a second teaching or to get like something from me in that way, then you're going to be disappointed. It's creating an environment where we want to cultivate a culture where people say, I'm going to minister to the person I'm sitting across from. We're going to pray together. And they are quirky and they are unpredictable. But time and time again, people who have committed to just saying, I'm going to be present, have made connections, have been prayed for, and have been able to minister to one another. And those little gatherings have served as a launching point for deeper relationships.
I can't, like building up the body means I can't make the hand do what the hand's supposed to do. But what I can do is lead and try to create a healthy environment that the hand can flourish in. Does that make sense? Like I can't, I, I can't make people like pray for one another, go visit somebody in the hospital, take somebody a meal. But I can cultivate an environment where we say that's the thing. That's the main thing. Let's not get distracted by all kinds of other things. Like let's make sure we're doing that thing really well and let that flow out into other things. That's Paul's plea. He's saying God gave the church people whose job is to equip the church. He gave you as a gift to this church family. And that when each member does their job well, when we're functioning in a healthy way, the whole body builds itself up in the love of Christ. Now I wish I had time to go into chapter 6, which is amazing, and I know um, that I will get people saying, like, how could you not do the armor of God? And I'll say, like, you tell that to the 75% of the congregation that was done at that point. But here's, the, here's all I'm going to say about that. The rest of that chapter, in, in, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, is kind of summed up in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 5. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The enemy will whisper all kinds of lies to you at this point. Your flesh will think it has things under control. And let me just tell you what I have learned over 20 plus years of ministry experience. No one thinks they need community until they really need community. And it's often too late at that point. No one thinks their sin is that bad until they are taken over by it. No one thinks they can't handle something until they can't handle it. So what Paul's saying is be wise. Don't be foolish. Don't think you're the exception to this. We know that we are fighting a battle and that battle is not against one another. It is against the evil one. And his goal is to pull you away from this. Paul is saying this is who God created you to be. This is the family he created you. So pour into that Build one another up in love. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This is where your inheritance is sealed. He's preaching all that. And he says, there is one that you used to belong to who is not done with you yet. And he will use any means possible to pull you away. To tell you you're too tired. To tell you you don't have anything to offer. To tell you that you think things should be done differently tell you you think that your giving would be better somewhere else, your time spent better somewhere else, that you are just fine going to church when you need a little fill up, that really what you get the most out of is just being equipped by the sermon, and so it's fine that you're not here. 
that other people have hurt you and so they don't really deserve you giving them your love and your gifts. And all of those things are the whispers of the evil one who lies because he seeks to destroy you. And what Paul is saying is be wise and know, listen to the one who loved you and gave himself up for you that you would be adopted as precious daughters and treasured sons that, who took you as you were off by yourself and formed you as a family. And look at your brothers and sisters and walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Let's pray. Father, how can we possibly understand this? God, I, I get a headache just trying to think about how, and how this all fits together, and yet it's also so simple. So God, we proclaim that which you have already declared is true to us, that you created us for you to share in your glory, that we, in our own flesh, in our own desires, have been lured away by the evil one, and by our, by our own desires to pursue our own thing in rebellion of you. And through that rebellion, all destruction has entered the world. And we should have been dead. We were dead in our trespasses, left for dead. But God, but you, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You did this while we were dead in our sins. And you have rescued us and bought us back. So God, help us to understand that and to feel that. And that you brought us back as daughters and sons, which means brothers and sisters. And now our life exists for you and for your glory. So God, let us walk in a manner worthy of that inheritance, worthy of that calling. Help us to resist the lies of the evil one who seeks to bring us back and lure us back away. God, let us be wise and walk in maturity as we pursue abiding in you and in one another loving one another as you have loved us. Pray this in Jesus' name.